Brothers and sisters, we are ready to begin our second class. Our speaker is Brother Roger Lewis. The theme for Brother Lewis's classes this week is, Who Was the Nameless Man of God? Today's class is entitled, When It Testified Beforehand. Brother Roger. Well, thank you, Brother Chairman, and good morning, my dear brothers and sisters. Immediately after the study is concluded, I will be walking off to the platform, which I do customarily achieve most days, but uh, we will be leaving the Bible School at that moment and um, traveling to Detroit to transfer to Eastern Bible School, which starts tonight. And so may I just say, brothers and sisters, again, what a pleasure it's been to be here at Midwest. Um, to the very good facilities at Trine, which appear to have settled in rather well over the last two or three years, and to be thankful for the joy that we all share in coming together at such times around the counsels of God's word to encourage each other towards the kingdom. We all come from lives where we're conscious of weakness and frailty, of sin, of difficulty, of stress. And actually, that's really, brothers and sisters, in measure, what the story of the man of God is all about. And that's what we hope to come to, God willing, in our concluding session this morning, as we consider this idea of the fact that in him, things were testified beforehand. So where did we come to in our session yesterday? Well, we discovered the secret to the story lay in the chiasmus, the chiasmic structure of the story, and that hidden there in the center was the key that took us out of the life of the man of God and into the life of our Lord Jesus Christ, and that that, that question of identity that was posed to the man of God, art thou the man? And his reply, I am is suddenly re-echoed in the gospel record as the Lord himself was asked that very same question. And suddenly with that focus, the story takes on a new dimension. Isn't it true, brothers and sisters, that it has always been the glory of God to conceal a word and the honor of kings to search it out? And, and these things are hidden in the record that we might feel the privilege of investigating them and have our minds and hearts opened as to the depth of Yahweh's scripture. I wonder if you would come with me to the first of Peter and chapter 1, uh, just before we come back into the story of the nameless man of God, because it's actually in the first of Peter chapter 1 where we've got the phrase that formed the basis for our title this morning. Uh, first of Peter chapter 1 is going to make comment on the fact that there were those in the past who testified beforehand. And the context of Peter's statement is useful for our purposes this morning. He says, 1 Peter chapter 1, and reading from verse 8, Whom having not seen, ye love, in whom, though now ye see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your salvation, even the end of your faith, rather, even the salvation of your souls, of which salvation 
The prophets have inquired and searched diligently who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. And what we're being told here is that the prophets of old showed forth in their life, not just by words, but by deeds, the Spirit of Christ at work. So that there in the Old Testament record, the life of Messiah might be seen, written across the page in foreshadowing of that which was to come. Now here's the lesson, brothers and sisters, I think at least in part from Peter, is that that Spirit of Christ in the prophets was always found in those who had sinned. It couldn't be any other way, could it, brothers and sisters? You see, they revealed aspects of Christ's suffering and tokens of Christ's glory but they always fell short of its fullness in their personal lives. Because that's what a type is. A type is a prefiguring of the work of Christ in one who is not Christ. And who therefore cannot reveal him perfectly. And if each of those in Old Testament times who showed the Spirit of Christ in their lives were perfect, then they would have been Christ, but they weren't, none of them. So we ought not to be surprised, brothers and sisters, at knowing a matter of sin in the life of the man of God, as if in some way that prevents him from manifesting Christ in his life. Of course he could, and he did. And the warrant of the chiasmus, I think, gives us the ability to come back now to the divine record afresh, irrespective of the man's sin, and to see what it was in his life where we might see the work of our Lord Jesus Christ written upon the page. So let's come and have a look at that, shall we? Let's come back to the, to the story of the man of God and to the first of Kings chapter 13. Now, you're going to need some, um, some handwork this morning because I'm going to take you in the first of Kings chapter 13 to a whole cascade of verses and bid you to see them afresh from another perspective. So it would be good if you could hold the first of Kings 13 in your left hand so that we can travel to the New Testament on more than one occasion in our comparison. So here's the first one. We're going to start at the very moment with which we ended in our study yesterday. First of Kings 13, verse 14. The record says, He went after the man of God and found him sitting under an oak, and he said unto him, Art thou the man of God that camest from Judah? And he said, I am. Now, do you know what's interesting about that, brothers and sisters? Here's the parable of the man of God that we're about to see now unfolded across the page of this chapter, the first of Kings 13. Do you know that the moment that the identity of the man of God was confirmed, it led to a whole cascade of events, didn't it? And the climax of that was these words at the end of verse 22. Thy carcass shall not come unto the sepulchre of thy fathers. Now who utters those words? Who utters the declaration that the man of God would die? And the answer is, the same man who asked his identity in verse 14, is it not? 
So what we're being told, brothers and sisters, is that the death of the man of God was sealed the moment he confirmed his identity when questioned. When he said, I am, it began a chain of events that would lead to the declaration that he would die. And isn't that exactly what the gospel records tell us, brothers and sisters? Matthew chapter 26 says, Tell us whether thou be the Christ. Jesus said unto him, Thou hast said. Then the high priest rent his clothes, saying, What think ye? And they answered and said, He is guilty of death. And likewise Mark's gospel said, Art thou the Christ? And Jesus said, I am. And then the high priest said, What think ye? And they all condemned him to be guilty of death. So here in Mark's gospel, Christ confirms his identity in verse 62 and immediately is condemned to death in verse 64. And who's the man who will declare that Jesus will die? Why, the very one who asked him the question of his identity just as it was in the story of the first of Kings chapter 13, you see. And I think, and I know that you will also think, that our Lord knew this story better than any of us. And that when in the Gospel records, in the Council of the Sanhedrin, he was asked, Art thou the man? Jesus' mind was already back in the first of Kings 13. And knowing what the outcome would be, brothers and sisters, he said, I am. And knew that death would follow. He knew his destiny because he knew the story of the man of God. Now have a look at the first of Kings chapter 13 and verse 19, brothers and sisters. Because we're told there, in verses 19 and 20, that it says, He went back with them, and did eat bread in his house, and drank water, and it came to pass, as they sat at the table, that the word of Yahweh came unto the prophet. Now let me just put that together for you, in the first of Kings chapter 13 here. You see, in those two verses, we've got a number of critical things that are mentioned. He went back with him, he ate bread, he drank water, he did so in the house, and they sat at the table. You see, these are all very, very significant words. To eat and to drink, and to do it with others, in the house, at the table. Ah, you see, what we're being told here is that the man of God's death followed a meal in a friend's house where he ate and drank at the table. Now, where might we have come across that idea before? See, that's Mark 14, isn't it? As they did eat, Jesus took bread, and he took the cup and gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And when we read the Gospels carefully, brothers and sisters, I think we're left in no doubt that the Lord partook of the emblems on the occasion of this meal. He ate and drank with them, just as the man of God had done. But if you come to the book of Luke, to the Gospel of Luke, let me just show you how the account of Luke chimes in with some of the other details here that, that are absolutely a match to the circumstances of the story of the man of God. Luke 22 says this. Now, keep your hand, remember, in 1 Kings 13, because we'll be coming back shortly, but verse 11 says, 
Luke 22, ye shall say unto the good man of the house, the master saith unto thee, where is the guest chamber? Now who might the good man of the house have been, brothers and sisters, but this, that he must have been a friend, a friend of Jesus. And what did Christ desire to do in the house of his friend? Verse 15, with desire I have desired to eat this Passover with you. He wanted to eat with his friends. And just as verse 16 says, I will not eat any more thereof, so he did eat the bread, so likewise, Matthew 26, verse 29 will tell us, I will not drink after this. He ate and drank. And so here in a friend's house, he would eat and drink before he suffered, brothers and sisters. This is exactly the story of the man of God, isn't it? The meal in the house of the friend, eating and drinking and fellowship together. And, and interestingly enough, Luke's gospel, and only Luke's gospel, adds one other tiny little detail in verse 21 when he says, Behold, the hand of him that betrayeth me is with me on the table, says Luke. The table. That's 1 Kings 13, verse 20, as they sat at the table. You think there's a foreshadowing there in the story of the man of God? I think so. See, this is part of the wonder and the excellence of what was hidden, you see, in the parable of the man of God. If you come to the first of Kings 13 and verse 24, we're told this, that when he was gone, a lion met him by the way and slew him, and his carcass was cast in the way, and the ass stood by it, and the lion also stood by the carcass. So it would be fair to say, wouldn't it, brothers and sisters, that the lion meeting him by the way and slaying him was not of itself miraculous. But the linking of the body and the ass and the lion was clearly miraculous. And God set the scene at the place of death with these three parties in close proximity frozen into position for the record to be written that this was how the man of God died. No one could doubt, could they, brothers and sisters, that the divine hand was at work that day. And so what we learn from verse 24 is that the death of the man of God involved extraordinary circumstances which indicated divine intervention. There could be no doubt from the circumstances of the day. Now come to the Gospel of Matthew in your other hand and see how dramatically Matthew paints the picture of this crisis in the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's a match, brothers and sisters, a match in the principle of the occasion. Matthew chapter 27 tells us this and reading from verse 50. Let's read it together. Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the spirit, and behold. And now look at the circumstances that the gospel unfolds. The veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom, and the earth did quake, and the rocks rent, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints which slept arose and came out of the graves after his resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared unto many. And we're left in no doubt, brothers and sisters, by the Gospel of Matthew, that the death of our Lord Jesus Christ involved a whole cascade of extraordinary circumstances, which indicated that here was a matter of divine intervention, just as the story of the body and the ass and the lion did in the circumstances of the man of God. And Luke, which we shan't turn up, 
adds yet a further detail, brothers and sisters, to that impressive list when he says in his gospel it was about the sixth hour and there was darkness over all the earth and the sun was darkened. There was no shortage of miraculous events on the day our Lord Jesus Christ died. But that principle of divine intervention, evident at the scene of the death, was right there in the first of Kings chapter 13 and verse 24. Was it not, brothers and sisters, all begun in the story of the man of God, you see? And if you come back to the first of Kings 13, you see now what verse 25 says. First of Kings 13, verse 25 says, And behold, men passed by, saw the carcass cast in the way, and the landing, the lion standing by the carcass, and they came and told it in the city. So really the account's quite simple. What it tells us what the first of Kings chapter 5 tells us is three little pieces of information. The men passed by, they saw the carcass, and they came and told it. So what we're being, what we're being told in the first of Kings 13 and verse 25 concerning the man of God is that his death was a matter of public display seen and reported on by those who passed by. Now that's exactly what the Gospel of Matthew says, Matthew 27. And they that passed by, they saw it all. The Lord's death was a matter of public display. In fact, if you come to Luke's Gospel now, to Luke chapter 23, see how Luke portrays this moment at the time of the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's the very spirit of what happened on the occasion of the death of the man of God. Luke chapter 23 puts it this way, brothers and sisters, and reading from, uh, reading from verse 46, it says, And when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit, and having said thus, he gave up the spirit. Now, when the centurion saw what was done, he saw, he witnessed, he noticed the public display, he said, certainly this was a righteous man. Verse 48, and all the people that came together to that site, but Rodham says, all the multitudes that had been drawn together by this spectacle, when they beheld the things that were done, they smote their breasts and returned. And all his acquaintance, verse 49, and the women that followed him afar off from Galilee, they stood afar off, beholding these things. The centurion saw, verse 47. The people saw, verse 48. His acquaintances saw, verse 49. Because it was all a matter of public display, brothers and sisters. The story of the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's all out of the story of the man of God, isn't it, you see? When you come back to the first of Kings 13 and verse 28, it is a strange story, isn't it? Because we're told this. It says, first of Kings 13 28, he went and found his carcass cast in the way, and the ass and the lion standing by the carcass. The lion had not eaten the carcass, nor torn the ass. He found his carcass cast in the way and the ass and the lion standing by. Well, that's how it starts in um, verse 24, really. The ass and the lion standing by. 
Now there's something unusual about this, brothers and sisters. So we haven't got time to turn these passages up, but perhaps if I can just briefly show them on the screen, maybe we will understand the point of the connection here. Because you see, those ideas that show us the moment when the ass and the lion stood by the carcass is highly significant in the outworking of events, really, isn't it? For this reason. Because you see, the ass is the symbol of Israel. In Genesis 49, the ass is Shiloh's animal, but Shiloh's the king of Israel. In Exodus 13, the nation is able to redeem but one animal with the offering of a lamb, and that's the ass, because it represented themselves, Israel. In Hosea chapter 8, Israel is swallowed up. Gone into Assyria, a wild ass alone by himself, says the record. And in Zechariah chapter 9, the daughter of Zion, the king of Israel, comes, and he rides upon the colt, the foal of an ass. The S is a symbol of Israel. And the lion? Well, the lion is a symbol of the Gentiles, is it not? Jeremiah chapter 4, the lion has come up from his thicket. The destroyer of the Gentiles is on his way. That's who the lion is. Joel chapter 1, a nation, a foreign nation has come up upon my land. He's like a lion, it says. 2 Timothy chapter 4, that by me the preaching might be fully known, says the apostle, that all the Gentiles might hear, and I was delivered out of the mouth of that lion, the Gentile authorities in Rome before whom he came, which incidentally is the very same line that Peter warns about in the first of Peter chapter 5, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil as a roaring lion, it was a warning against the authorities of the Roman Empire, who at that very time had launched a persecution against the Christians. Beware of the lion, says Peter. Yes, it's a reference to the Gentiles. So what we're being told, brothers and sisters, back in the first of Kings 13, is that both the Jew, the ass, and the Gentile, the lion, would be associated together in the matter of the death and the burial of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a remarkable thing, really, because Acts 4 says, For of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together, says Acts chapter 4, verse 27. It reminds us of the words of our hymn, hymn 243. "'Twas on that dark and mournful night when... Jew and Gentile joined their power against the Son of God to fight, to mock his name, his life devour. And that's what Mark says, you see. Mark chapter 10 verse 33 says, The Son of Man shall be delivered unto the chief priests and unto the scribes. That's Israel. And they shall condemn him to death and then deliver him to the Gentiles. So the ass was the instrument of delivery. Israel. And the lion was the instrument of execution, Rome, the Gentile power of the moment. Now, it's interesting, brothers and sisters, because the divine record doesn't just tell us that the Jew and the Gentile, the ass and the lion, were simply associated with the death of Christ. The record is at pains to tell us this. See that verse, verse 28? I think it's at pains to tell us that the ass and the lion stood over the body to guard it between them. 
Now, when did that moment of infamous collusion reach its climax in the gospel records? Well, come and have a look at Matthew chapter 27, because here's the moment where, where that came to the very drama that would lead to the wonder of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because Matthew 27 says something rather interesting about the arrangements made for the guardianship of the body. And this is what we're told in Matthew 27. The record says this. Reading from verse 62, the next day that followed the day of the preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees came together unto Pilate, and they said, Sir, we remember that that deceiver said, while he was yet alive, after three days I will rise again. Command, therefore, that the sepulchre be made sure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say unto the people, He's risen from the dead, and so the last error shall be worse than the first. And Pilate said unto them, Ye have a watch, go your way, make it as sure as ye can. So they went and made the sepulchre sure, sealing the stone and setting the watch. And by deliberate collaboration between the Jewish leaders and the Roman governor, brothers and sisters, they both stood guard over the dead body of Christ, and they each did it for their own interests. But they ended up by vindicating the story of the empty tomb and the risen Christ, and it was their own standing over the body that made it impossible to deny. So this is what actually happened, you see. They, the Jews, went and made the sepulchre sure, the ass was right there, standing over the carcass. But when it says they set a watch, the Greek word is custodia, which is the Roman guard, the Gentiles. The ass and the lion stood guard over the carcass, brothers and sisters, of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the parable of the man of God, the story of the man of God was seen again in the gospel records. Isn't it remarkable? You see what it says in 1st of Kings 13 and verse 29. It says, And the prophet took up the carcass of the man of God and laid it upon the ass and brought it back. And the old prophet came to the city to mourn and to bury him. He took up the carcass and brought it back, it says. Well, he couldn't leave it on the roadside, could he? And so what we're told is that at the moment of the man of God's death, someone was there to remove the corpse so that it would not be desecrated. The old prophet of Bethel was grieved at the death of one more righteous than he, and so his salute lay in this action of removing the body for a decent burial. And so what we're really being told in the first of Kings 13 and verse 29 concerning the death of the man of God is that his dead body was taken away by a friend and removed for private interment. What does that remind us of? Well, it reminds us firstly of Mark chapter 15, doesn't it? Joseph of Arimathea craved the body. The word actually means literally the corpse. It answers to the word carcass here in the first of Kings 13 in verse 28. Joseph craved the corpse of Jesus and took him down. In fact, if you come to John chapter 19 in your right hand, uh, let me just show you what John says, because there's a sort of, again, a key idea here where the gospel record echoes and chimes back to the story of the man of God. It says in John 19, John 19 verse 
38. And after this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, besought Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him leave. And so he came, therefore, and he took away the body. And so what we're being told, brothers and sisters, in the Gospel of John, is that what the old prophet did for the man of God, Joseph of Arimathea did for the Lord. He besought Pilate that he might take away the body, the carcass, and he came and took it. And that word came to take means to bear away what's been lifted, to take up. And so just as the man of God was raised up and lifted upon the ass, so Joseph lifted up the body of Jesus to bear him away. And Joseph's intention was identical to the spirit of the old prophet of the first of Kings 13. He wanted to prevent the destruction of the body that no doubt the authorities intended. You see, brothers and sisters, Joseph had become a disciple, and so he faced his fear, and he went up to the lion power of Rome that was guarding the body, and he asked that he might take it away just like the old prophet had got down off his ass and faced the lion and asked if he could take the body away. The old prophet had become a disciple of the man of God and his message, and he would face his fear and the lion to act with decency and courage in removing the body, brothers and sisters. Isn't there a parallel here? I think so. And what about this one in the first of Kings chapter 13 and verse 30? He laid his carcass in his own grave and they mourned over him saying, Alas, my brother. Now the record doesn't seem to make this quite clear, but there's something more to this than meets the eye. We've already mentioned that the word grave in verse 30 is the same as the word sepulchre in verse 31. But the interesting thing, the unusual thing, is that the old prophet already owns a sepulchre before he's dead. I draw your attention to that. Because there's something about the substance of this man that you you need to realize. You see, this man, the old prophet, is wealthy enough to own a house, verse 19. He dines at a table, verse 20, which ordinarily only kings dined at. He owns at least two asses, verses 27 and 28. And verse 30 says he's got his own sepulcher. But brothers and sisters, ordinary people didn't have sepulchers purchased and hewn out of the rock before their death. The only people of whom the scriptures say that such arrangements were made were the wealthy. Asa the king had a sepulchre carved out before his death in the second of Chronicles 16 and verse 14. Shebna the treasurer had hewn out a sepulchre before his death in Isaiah 22 verse 16. Josiah had a sepulchre hewn and prepared before his death in the second of Kings 23 verse 30. Ordinary people didn't have sepulchres like that, not before they died, but this old prophet did. And we're led to the conclusion, brothers and sisters, that the old prophet must have been a rich man. Oh, now, what does that remind us of? Well, come and have a look, brothers and sisters, at what the record will tell us in the Gospel of Matthew. Because Matthew, in the story of the burial of Christ, and only Matthew's gospel, 
will give two little details unique to his account and both of which take us back into the story of the man of God. Because in Matthew's account of the burial of Christ, Matthew chapter 27, and reading from verse 57, it says this, And when the even was come, there came a rich man of Arimathea named Joseph. Only Matthew tells us that. All the Gospels say that Joseph of Arimathea came. Only Matthew says he was a rich man. And not only was he a rich man, but precisely because he was a rich man, and precisely because he could afford it, why, he had a sepulcher prepared before his death. And so verse 59 says, When Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and he laid it in his own new tomb. And the first of Kings 13 said he laid the carcass in his own sepulchre. And only Matthew will tell us that it was Joseph's own tomb. Or as Luke 23 says, he took it down and laid it in a sepulchre that was hewn in stone wherein never man before was laid. And we suddenly realize that the whole story, brothers and sisters, the whole story of Matthew's record of Joseph of Arimathea matches the story of the old prophet, you see. And no doubt he felt the same grief and anguish that the old prophet had felt at the death of the man of God as Joseph of Arimathea comes mourning for the burial of Christ. What amazingly similar circumstances, brothers and sisters, as the record unfolds in the life of our Lord. And then we're told this in the first of Kings 13 and verse 31. The record will say this. It says, it came to pass that after he had buried him, that he spake to his sons, saying, When I am dead, then bury me in the sepulchre wherein the man of God is buried, and lay my bones beside his bones. So, what he says is to put his bones alongside the bones of the man of God. Something interesting when you think about it in terms of what the old prophet says in verse 31. Because you see, who owned that sepulchre? The answer is it was the old prophet's. He owned it, it was his sepulchre. But he doesn't ask his son saying, bury me in my own sepulchre. No, he asks them to bury him in the sepulchre wherein the man of God is buried. It's his sepulchre now but I want to be buried with him, says the old prophet. So this was more than just a mark of respect, brothers and sisters. It was the deliberate act of identification. And so what we're told concerning the death of the man of God here is that his death converted others who wished to be identified with his death and burial. Well, isn't that Romans chapter 6? Know you not that so many of us are, are baptized into Jesus Christ, are baptized into his death, therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death. Buried with him. Isn't that exactly what the old prophet asked? Bury me with him. Lay my bones with the bones of the man of God. And so Colossians says in Colossians chapter 2, ye are complete in him which is the head of all principality and power, because you are buried with him in baptism. That's the key, brothers and sisters. Baptism is what identifies us with the one man of God that can save us, 
our Lord Jesus Christ. And so just as the old prophet desired to be identified with the man of God, even in, in his burial, so also we're told in the New Testament record that the spirit of laying hold of the power of Christ's sacrifice is to be buried with him and that we accomplish that in the waters of baptism. And just as well that the old prophet sought so earnestly to be identified with the man that he'd buried in his own tomb, because actually there's an interesting addition that the Septuagint adds to the words of 1st of Kings 13 verse 31. Because this is what the Septuagint says, Whenever I die, bury me in this tomb wherein the man of God is buried, lay me by his bones that my bones might be preserved with his bones. That's not in the Hebrew. It's not in the authorised version. We're not sure where the Septuagint got that from, but it's an interesting thought, isn't it, brothers and sisters? Because what he's really saying, you see, is that the death of the man of God was the means of deliverance from destruction for those associated with him. Bury my bones with him, says the old prophet, so that my bones might be preserved with his and with his bones. Well, isn't that exactly in the end, brothers and sisters, what the record did say happened? Because do you recall in the first of second of Kings chapter 23 and verse 18, that Josiah, when he spied this very place, this sepulchre, he said, let him alone, let no man move his bones, and so they let his bones alone. But the margin says, let his bones escape. Let his bones escape. Escape what? Escape the coming destruction. And so they did leave the bones of the man of God alone with the bones of the prophet buried with him, the old prophet that came out of Bethel. And that's what Romans says again, isn't it? Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, for if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Deliverance will come to those who are associated with the man of God thus buried. How remarkable, brothers and sisters, at the way in which a story can be taken up. And, and one last thing, while we're in the first of Kings chapter 13, we're told this in verse 32, at the end of the story, it's going to say, bury me alongside this one because of the saying which he cried by the word of Yahweh. That saying, says the old prophet at the end of the verse, shall surely come to pass. The saying which the man of God cried, I believe, I witness, I testify, says the old prophet, it shall surely come to pass. And so what we're being told is that the story of the man of God was taken up in witness by others after his untimely death. The man of God had died, but the story of his message would carry on through the voice of the old prophet, and then through the voice of the old prophet's sons, and then through others who would have heard the story to, to pass the message on. And that's the spirit of Acts, isn't it? Go speak, says Acts chapter 5, all the words of this life. We ought to obey God rather than men, says Peter, because him, this man of God, has been exalted by God's right hand, and we are witnesses of these things, he says. And likewise in Acts chapter 10, and we are witnesses of all things which he did. Witnesses, we, he says, chosen by God, even us who did eat and drink with him. We who did eat and drink with him. That's what the old prophet had done. He'd eaten and drunk with the man of God. Now he goes forth to witness to the truth of his story. 
Now, isn't it astonishing, brothers and sisters, that the story of the nameless man of God, which seems so tragic in its end, his death and his mournful burial, suddenly moves to the matter of his memorial grave to his escape from the ultimate destruction of the bones and to this glorious foreshadowing, brothers and sisters, this foreshadowing of the work of Christ, so rich and so detailed that it, it takes our breath away. It's like this whole new story lying underneath the story, the parable of the man of God. And all this out of the life of a man who on the surface appears as an example of a good man who made a bad mistake and paid a heavy penalty. And wouldn't it be true, brothers and sisters, that as we read this story together, did you feel the same thing that I did when I first read the story, that there was a sense that there was a bit of injustice done to this man of God, don't you think? And now even the injustice makes sense, doesn't it? Who would doubt that our Lord experienced injustice? And far worse than the man of God, he who endured such contradiction of sinners against himself. Was there injustice in the story of the Lord's trial and crucifixion? Oh yes, there was. So who was the nameless man of God, brothers and sisters? And why was he nameless? Well, I think he's deliberately nameless, you see because he must represent all those who follow Christ. All we who are the, but nameless saints, men and women alike, in our weakness and our smallness, in our folly, in our failure. You see, compared to Christ, who's been given a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, we're just nameless ones, aren't we? Whose exploits fall so far short of his that we do not even deserve a mention in the book. And yet if you come to the first of Corinthians in chapter 1, we have a few words of wonderment from the Apostle Paul that captures the very spirit of this man whose life's story we have considered, and that we might in the end be satisfied that he has no name, so that he can be all of our experience. Because Paul said this in the first of Corinthians in chapter 1, verse 26, For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many high-born are called, but God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty and base things of the world, and things which are despised hath God chosen. Yea, and things which are not, to bring to naught things that are, that's us, brothers and sisters, we are the foolish, we are the weak, we are the base, we are the despised, we are the sinners. And yet God, astonishingly, has chosen all of us, brothers and sisters, 
verse 29, so that no flesh should glory in His presence, but of Him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God has made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. And the wonder of the truth, brothers and sisters, the wonder of all that the truth is about is that God has called us men and women stricken with our sin and asked us to manifest Him and asked us to show forth the Spirit of His Son in our lives. And that's the thing you see. In the nameless man of God, we see the Spirit of Christ in a life that was not perfect. And in His story, we find hope to believe that the Spirit of the Lord might be seen in our lives as well. Despite our inability to remove sin altogether in this present life, what the man of God teaches is that despite the weakness of our nature and despite the frequency of our sin, we are all able to manifest the Spirit of Christ in our lives. So let's be thankful to God, brothers and sisters, and go home and do just that and testify beforehand in our own lives that which pertains to our Saviour. And let's be thankful to our Father in heaven for the story of the nameless man of God. Just like to take a moment to thank our brother Roger and sister Pauline for their work this week. As you've often said, good Bible study begins with good Bible reading, and we thank you for taking us through the story with good Bible reading, bringing it alive, and helping us to see the lessons that come forward for each and every one of us to take on that opportunity to really become the best manifestation that we can of Christ in our lives. So thank you very much, and God be with you on your continued journeys. Thank you.